0: Whose sports career involves the most legendary play in college football history, the Incredible Hulk, the 1980 U.S. hockey team, and the Rolling Stones? Well, my next guest, that's who, right here. It's time for the College Football Legends Podcast. The players. We're going to hit somebody, and we're taking down the field for a touchdown. I guarantee you that. The coaches. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The players there goes davis oh my god davis is going to run it all the way back and so much more. college football legends heroes come and go but legends live forever believe in college football legends on the believe podcast network i'm chris smith We've all seen that iconic commercial about a person who is called the most interesting man in the world. But that's a fictional character, and he has nothing on mind. Special guest on the show, Joe Starkey, legendary sports broadcaster and play-by-play announcer for the California Golden Bears. Thanks for joining me, Joe. Uh,
1: delighted to be with you. <laughs>
0: and you've been at Cal since 1975. You are also sports director for kgo radio in san fran play-by-play announcer for the 49ers for 20 seasons also calling usfl nhl nba and even super bowls so let's go to california memorial stadium in 1982 so you've been there for a little while for the big game and take us into the announcer's booth with cal leading 19 to 17 late in the fourth john elway is driving stanford down the field
1: well uh, yeah picking it up from there um Elway, at that point, which is uh, a lot of people are always surprised when, when they hear this, that he never went to a bowl game. Because that is in that amazing. Era, you know, there were far fewer bowl games, first of all. And so it, it wasn't that unusual. Even if you had a winning season, sometimes you wouldn't go to a bowl game. But they had already been told going into that 82 finale that if they won, they were going to go to the bowl. And I think it was the Independence Bowl, if I'm not mistaken. But anyhow, they were set to go if they beat Cal in that game. And here we are late in the game. Uh, the bears are leading, uh, by a, by a point, uh, Elway has a fourth and 17 at his own 13 yard line and he completes a pass and it ends up setting up a field goal. So Harmon kicks a field goal. They have the lead and there are four seconds to play in the game. Now, the fascinating thing about this that has come out over the years is, it, is really makes this a, there's so many stories around that game and that play is that the assistant coaches, the Stanford coaches up in the booth, wanted to set up the field goal based on the clock. And they literally had a, a, apparently a rather strong discussion about should we stop the clock at 8 seconds or at 4 seconds. The group that said 8 seconds won because they said, what if something goes wrong? What if we got time that we can fall on the ball, do something and get another kick?
0: Yeah, take so another, instead take of another shot it at go, it.
1: Yeah. So instead of going down to four, which would have ended the game under all conditions, miss it or make it, they went to eight, and because they went to eight and the field goal was good and they now have a one-point lead, but they have created a situation where they do have to kick off, and of course the kickoff became uh, one of the most famous plays in college football history.
0: Oh, all the field. He-
1: Dramatic, hard exciting, thrilling finish in the history of college football.
0: California, has won the big game over Stanford. It really is. It always tops all the lists of the greatest college football plays in history. And so much happened during that play. Did you just follow the ball and let the words flow without really thinking? Was it just a flow of consciousness?
1: Yeah, it um, and it was it was very awkward. In fact, I, I can remember vividly. When when the game was over and, and all the excitement around it and the drama and all that that night, I was really unhappy. I was very upset with myself because uh, as a hockey announcer at that point and the ability to to do sports quickly, I really was upset that I was not so specific on the names of the players because I knew everybody and was really good about not making a generic calls, And I couldn't figure out why wasn't I more specific in listing the players who did all the laterals. And it wasn't until I saw a video, a video replay a couple of weeks after the game that uh, I kind of forgave myself because I realized, well, it's, you couldn't. You couldn't see him. There was so much going on in the field. The band members were now out on the field. And so they were blocking off uh, the view in so many different ways. Uh, the last lateral was all but impossible to see uh, that uh, Moret Ford sent back to Kevin Mohn. Uh, who scored the touchdown, that I that I came to terms with it. But there was so much going on, so much in different directions. And, of course, uh, Kevin uh, running over the trombone player to down the ball in the end zone sort of finished it all off in rather dramatic fashion.
0: Yeah, not your normal call, an everyday call, that's for sure. To this day, everybody says it's the most uh, thrilling finish ever. Is that the most thrilling finish you ever seen in your career?
1: Well, you know, I put an asterisk on that, and a lot of people were surprised that that wouldn't be number one, but... My number one is truly unique. Um, I had left the NHL, uh, the Colorado Rockies, at the end of the 79 season, 78-79 season, and came back to San Francisco. uh, The ABC station, KGO, for a long time, said, why don't you come back and work for us? And it was clear that the Colorado Rockies were not going to survive in the long term in the NHL. And as uh, many people would know, they became the New Jersey Devils. And so I went back to the Bay Area to become sports director at KGO. Now, KGO was an ABC network station. And so they, at that time, always had the rights for the Olympics. And so they sent me to Lake Placid for the 1980 games. And because I'd just come out of the league, I knew most of the players on the team. Uh, the assistant uh, head coach, Craig Patrick, and I were close friends. We actually commuted together going to Seals games a few years before. So I was really attached to that hockey team. And so I was in the right place at the right time when they played the final, uh, the the game against the Russians on a Friday night. Wow! And so what I did, uh, since I had the rights as an ABC broadcaster, I could phone in reports. And so in the third period, when Ruzioni got the lead goal with 10 minutes to go, I called uh, the ABC station in San Francisco and said, look, this is going to sound ridiculous because uh, to put it in context, for example, the game was not being carried live on television or radio. Yep. It was on safe delay. Nobody thought it was going to be a big deal. Nobody thought the U.S. could win. So I called my station and I said, look, fire me afterwards, but please interrupt everything and let me carry the play-by-play of the last 10 minutes of this game uh, to call this because this could be an historic moment. And so they did. They, In fact, they lined up all the West Coast ABC affiliates on the radio, And so I broadcast the last 10 minutes of the game. And because I I knew everybody on both teams, I'd seen Russian games before. I knew uh, all the other teams. So that to me was the single most dramatic sporting event I've ever attended because of the implications. You know, that wasn't, that was the USSR in that time. That was Soviet Russia. That's the US against them. That's all the things that went around that game. That's the uh, pro athletes on the Russian team, you know, a bunch of baloney that they were amateurs. And so you got these kids basically. Uh, from America, knocking off what is generally regarded as the best hockey team in the world. And so I thought that was, from an emotional standpoint, the historic uh, capture of it is still the, the best thing I've ever been part of.
0: Wow, you've been a part of so many historic moments. And going back real quick to the play, there was some controversy uh, in many minds, and since instant replay wouldn't be adopted until 2005, what do you say to those who think that some of the laterals, plus the chaos that ensued while the ball was still live was illegal?
1: You know, the the closest it came was uh, Dwight Garner made a a lateral when it appeared that his knee was just about to hit the ground. And so that, even if you look at replays now, though, I, I think it would still follow the same rules they do today. The basic rule even today is you change it only if it's an overriding decision, that you can see it clearly enough to say, yes, that we are going to change that. But you can't change it if you're not sure. And I think it was vague enough that since they'd already called it OK, there'd be no way to overthrow it. It wasn't that uh, definite enough. So they had to let it go. And after that, all the, all the other laterals uh, certainly appeared to be legal uh, down the field.
0: Yeah, and John Elway, he wasn't that pleased about it. He said it was an insult to college football and it cost Stanford possibly the Heisman. And like you were saying before, denying him a bowl game. Uh, have you ever talked to him about it? Or if you did meet him, what do you think he would say?
1: Well, it, it took a long time. But on the 25th anniversary, a uh, one of the uh, cable sports networks, and it's one that doesn't even exist anymore. I can't remember their name. But they sat, uh, They had us all come in, and we taped an hour special that I, I still have a copy of myself. It was Elway, Kevin Moen who scored. Uh, we had the, uh, the trombone player and myself. <laughs> so help me to talk about that game. All the main and, pieces. Uh, yeah, and John made a point of saying, you know, this is the first time I've ever done this, and this was 25 years later. Wow. And he said, I'm still not comfortable with it, but he did, and so he was nice enough to uh, to finally at least uh, at least deal with it.
0: And on the show, Joe Starkey, legendary sports broadcaster and play-by-play announcer for the Cal Golden Bears. And I found this hilarious. Does Stanford really alter the plaque on the axe in protest still?
1: Oh yeah, every year, and, and you know, one recently. They, they uh, beat Cal, I think it was eight in a row, it was either eight or nine in a row. And so that score was changed uh, for nearly a, a full decade because every time Stanford would win the big game and they would get possession of the axe, they changed the score back to 20 to 19.
0: Oh, <laughs> still bitter, still bitter. Yep. Uh, right. And going into your, uh, your amazing career, what got you in the broadcasting, Joe?
1: Well, you know, it, it is a, probably a little different entry than most people because I went. To, I grew up in Chicago, got an MBA from Loyola University in Chicago. But when I left school, uh, honestly, um, broadcasting was not something I thought I would do. I always loved it growing up. I was one of those kids that uh, a couple of us would sit in front of the, the Cub games on television, which in Chicago, by the way, were on every day, all that was starting back in the early 50s. And we just sit there and pretend to do the play by play, but never took it as something that we turn it into a career. So what happened, though, is that uh, after I got into the business world in Chicago, um, I decided I wanted to move to the West Coast. Um, one of the reasons is, is, I guess, kind of an amazing story, in that I was in the National Guard in the uh, magic year of 19. Uh, 19- 68.
0: Oh, thank you for event. your service.
1: That's right. So that's, uh, that was the era of the riots in Chicago, the Mayor Daly event in Grant Park, Martin Luther King riots. So I literally, in my own hometown, was in full battle fatigues and carrying rifles around on the, the west side of Chicago. So it kind of uh, kind of drove me to say, you know, maybe there's somewhere else to go, even though all my family was there. I was kind of driven to make a move. In fact, one of the Strange stories about it is I had uh, seen an ad for a job in uh, Los Angeles with Mattel Toys, which at that time was red hot. That was the start of Hot Wheels and Barbie and all that. Sure, they were looking looking for corporate recruiters, which was kind of right down my alley as somebody with an MBA primarily in industrial relations. And so I went for an interview uh, with the people from Union Bank, and believe it or not, I did the interview in full combat fatigues with an M1 rifle. <laughs> <laughs>
0: were they were they must have been a little standoffish, but yeah, exactly. You better yeah. give that guy the job. <laughs>
1: yeah. So in uh, fact, I, I always tell the story about uh, when the guy asked me, "Why do you want to do this?" and I said, "Are you kidding? Look at me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know." So anyhow, I went to I moved to Southern California, and for whatever reason. It just started getting into my head more and more that, you know, somewhere along the line, I've got to take a run at broadcasting. And so uh, in the late 60s, when I moved there, you had the ABA, the American Basketball Association, and you had a team in in the L.A. sports arena. Uh, Jim Hardy, a former great player and general manager of the Rams, uh, was now running the, the basketball team. And so I actually uh, had asked him and said, would you mind if I sat at the uh, main table uh, courtside and practiced play by play? Because they had no radio station. He said, well, yeah. He says, why don't you sit down there? Maybe somebody don't think we're actually broadcasting. <laughs> so that was a big help because it got me. And what I started to do while working at a bank and becoming bank, uh, vice president for Union Bank, I would uh, go to the forum and tape Laker games, Kings games, uh, things like that, and just kept working on it and working on it. And finally, in the, after being transferred to San Francisco to run the Northern California office of the bank, which was Union Bank, I finally decided uh, or got an opportunity that I didn't expect. I had no experience, but Charlie Finley owned the Seals hockey team. And Finley didn't know a lot about hockey, and he wasn't very successful with it but it was the biggest break for me because the broadcaster that they had for Seals hockey on radio and television quit to actually go to LA and do the Kings. And so I knew the job was open. I'm right,
0: right place at the right time.
1: Yeah. So I, I invented a business trip to Chicago. Uh, his, his offices were headquartered in my hometown and I literally walked into his office and said, Mr. Finley, I know you need a broadcaster for the hockey team. I have a tape here that I've been doing at the games at the Oakland arena uh, would you listen to it? So he listened to it, and, well, as bizarre as it sounds, he hired me uh, 20 minutes after I got there. Wow. And, <laughs> which, <laughs> but uh, as Paul Harvey would say, that's not the rest of the story. Because, remember, my background at this point is uh, MBA, industrial relations, handling uh, employment issues and all that. And Finley had a reputation of being terrible with his people, firing them left and right, right? Uh, and so he gave me uh, an, an, outing, an opening where I said, "You know, Mr. Friendly, not only what I could I do your broadcast, I might be able to help you with the issues because you're having an awful lot of turnover in your business." Sure. Well, he he thought that was uh, an insult, and he fired me. <laughs> so I, had, I had the job for about twenty minutes.
0: Oh my gosh! So how did you <laughs> yeah. recover?
1: Well, actually, uh, I did an end run, uh, and I'm uh, I guess. Uh, I'm surprised that I got away with it, but I, what I did is I went, when I came back to Northern California, I went to the station manager at the radio station that carried the hockey games and uh, told him to listen to the tape, asked him if he'd be interested. He hires me, and I said, okay, now, Bo, I said, um, but you need to know what happened in Chicago. And so he said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So I go to the bank. I quit uh, the bank. And uh, 24 hours after quitting the bank, I get a call from the station manager, uh, a guy named Len Smith, who said, tell me again about what happened with you and Charlie in Chicago.
0: Oh, he got wind thought, of it.
1: oh I've already quit. I could be in a lot of trouble here. And I explained the situation. He said, I'll, he said, we'll get this fixed. Don't worry about it. Well, at that point, this is 1972, fall of 1972. And the A's are in the World Series in, uh, against the Dodgers. And he says, I will be up in the skybox with Charlie at the start of the World Series, and uh, which was uh, a couple of days before the start of the hockey season was getting uh, underway. At that time, it was much earlier for the World Series. And uh, he said, I'm going to play him your tape, and we'll get this solved. So what he told me later is that uh, in the uh, booth, while they were watching the uh, World Series game in Oakland, that Finley told him, he said, he said, no, that guy clearly, he says, he, I don't think he could be good at this. Uh, he's got a, a real feel for the for the game. But he said, there's something familiar about that voice. He says, I'm trying to figure out where <laughs> I am first- And apparently he, he, he got up uh, somewhere about the fourth or fifth inning after listening to me a few times. And he turned to the station manager from the radio station and said, please don't tell me that that's that son of a bitch banker.
0: Oh, oh no. He caught well, it. Well, was
1: that son of a bitch banker. So, But he hired me anyhow and uh, – that was the catalyst for getting me into the broadcast world. And, um, you know, a few times I looked back and thought, is this a logical thing to continue to do? As you know, the Seals were um, not a successful franchise. They ended up going out of business, one of the few teams ever to just completely fold up. But it was my catalyst uh, for getting started in the industry.
0: We are speaking with Joe Starkey, legendary sports broadcaster and play-by-play announcer for the California Golden Bears. And how'd you make your way to Cal then after that? You should write a book, well, The Art of Persistence, just to get into the business.
1: It, it worked out because, uh, again, sometimes you, you need some breaks. And what I was doing is that um, when I wasn't doing the hockey games, I would sit up in the uh, press box at uh, Giants games, uh, particularly the Giants game, much more in the age, just for because they were so much easier to do at Candlestick. You really had a lot of space up there and nobody bothered you. And so I would, uh, I would tape games. And do that kind of thing. And I, and I got to know a guy named Monty Stickles, a name that some people might remember, who was a um, uh, NFL tight end for the 49ers. Sure. Um, um, great player at Notre Dame. And he was the sports director at KGO. And somehow we just started talking. And so I was doing hockey. And he said, would you be interested in doing some fill in at uh, our station, KGO? Because he said, we're always looking for vacation relief and all that. And I was only doing the hockey season, so I said, sure, that sounds great. Why not? So starting out in, uh, in 72 and 73, I would fill in once in a while. And uh, it was a, kind of a strange way it happened because after the <laughs> 74 football season, uh, the guy that, who was doing the game for him, they felt it just wasn't good enough. So they wanted somebody that seemed to know play-by-play and a better, more effectively, and they'd heard me do hockey. And so they uh, asked me if I wanted to do Cal football starting in the 1975 season. And, of course, they asked the question that uh, we all lie about as broadcasters. They said, uh, um, have you ever done any football? And I said, of course. Take <laughs> 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 um, uh, it till you make time. it. Yeah, that's the way it has to work. I mean, you wouldn't say no. And so I got the job starting in 75, and uh, except for, uh, for, believe it or not, five games, in 1977, I have been there ever since.
0: What a bonanza is one of your trademark calls. What goes into each catchphrase, or is it just something that's organic?
1: That was um, just a fluke because a friend of mine who, uh, the close pal of mine to this day, we both worked at uh, Union Bank together. We both did the same thing. We were corporate recruiters and all that. And we shared season tickets for the Rams on their first time around in L.A. and for USC. And so we would sit together at the games, and that was his phrase. Uh, If something great would happen, he'd yell, what a bonanza. And so for me, it was just an outshoot of uh, trying to figure out something to say when something dramatic happened. It started with the Seals hockey team. And, in fact, after the first few times I used it and people started picking up on it, I stopped it because I thought, I don't want to become a cliche. I I don't want something that's kind of, you know, like it's programmed. Sure. And and so but the general reaction was, no, it fits perfectly, particularly in hockey and in big plays. And so I said, okay, I'll um, I'll stay with it, but I'll try not to make it sound like it's a a setup. You know, I want to do it when I'm really comfortable with it. And so uh, to this day, it's uh, it's it still carries on for me.
0: That's fantastic. Well, you received numerous awards, multiple times voted Best California Play-by-Play Broadcaster by the AP, Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer now, and uh, the recipient of the National Football Foundation's Chris Schenkel Award. And they even named the broadcast booth after you. Uh, When you were a kid from Chicago, did you ever dream of this much success in the sports world?
1: No. Uh, As I said, even growing up, I I didn't think this is where I would end up. And so uh, the fact that I did... Um, it was just, uh, as I say, the icing on the cake because um, I've loved doing it. Um, it uh, beats the heck out of showing up in uh, the banker's office from 9 to 5. And, you know, it's given me an opportunity to see the world. I mean, I've done games uh, all over the world for various sports and uh, had a chance to meet some great people. And so uh, there's not much to complain about.
0: Well, it has been a legendary career, and I hope for continued success, but it's, it's time, time to go. go. Free and out. It's time to go three and out with Joe Starkey. Three-letter questions to close out the interview. First, tell me a time when someone recognized you out in public.
1: Uh, in 1990, my wife and I, we've got three boys, but only the youngest came with us on a trip to uh, Italy. Okay. And so we're, we're touring Italy, and it's in August, and we've been all over the country, and we're heading to Rome in August on a really hot day. Oh, and it can get brutal up-
0: there, too. Yes.
1: Yeah. So we end up going to a place called the Cavalieri Hilton, which is on a hill that overlooks uh, the Vatican. It's a beautiful spot. So we check into the hotel and it's like noon and my wife and my 11-year-old are are tired from the heat and all that. And they say they want to go upstairs. They're going to take a nap. And I said, I need to get into the swimming pool. So I said, I'm going to go down to the pool. So I go down to the pool with a book. I sit poolside. (laughs) So this is story is so bizarre the entire rolling stones band and their families join me at the pool
0: your your life's like uh, if you watch forest company you're like no no all that stuff possibly couldn't have happened to one person
1: right so lou uh, charlie watts sits down next to me i start asking him about you know what's going on they got a concert that night uh and the next couple of days they're going to be doing a couple of shows in rome uh, to this day, I never forgive myself for not saying, well, you got any extra tickets? I mean, you know, here I am with him sitting there in the pool. yeah, And I hit him up, but I didn't. And he says, though, after we're chatting for a while and just talking back and forth, he says, let's go in the pool. I said, I'm with you. Let's go. <laughs> so we get in the swimming pool, and we're just standing in the shallow end. Now, this gets so bizarre. Joining us in the pool, on one side, I have Charlie Watts on my right arm. So help me God, on my left arm, joining us is Lou Ferrigno.
0: <laughs> the Incredible Hulk's
1: there? The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> so <laughs> I got the Incredible Hulk on my left. I have Charlie Watts on my right. And a guy dives in at the other end of the pool and starts swimming at us. And Charlie says, he says, you know, it's crazy. He says, you cannot get away from uh, the hero worshipers and the people that want to talk to you. They says, he says, sometimes it gets a little irritating. So the guy swims up to the three of us. And so, help me, God, he says, Aren't you the Cal football announcer? No.
0: (laughs) And you said, I hate to be recognized. Please stop.
1: Yeah. No autographs, please. So I thought you liked that one.
0: Oh, that is fantastic. (laughs) And every voice artist has a magic elixir to keep their pipes in top shape. What is your secret?
1: Well, believe it or not, one of the things I do um, uh, is I'm a bit of an Irish tenor, and so when I'm getting ready for football season, I will sing in the car. I mean, I will just, I'll pull out some, uh, I'll sing some opera or uh, do some uh, songs that kind of test your voice and kind of use that to kind of build up the voice um, as you get ready for for a season, and I think that helps. And what happens after the first few weeks is your voice does get stronger, I think for all of us, no matter what sport. And it isn't as much of a problem. But early in almost every season, I can tell that I get a little raspy late in a game or not quite as sharp as I think it should sound. Uh, And so I try to beat that by doing a lot of uh, uh, singing and screaming sometimes uh, before the season starts.
0: Yeah, you got to keep it strong.
1: And, important
0: and finally, I'm a foodie. You live in the Bay Area but are from Chicago. Is there any place in the Bay Area that could replicate legendary Chi-Town dishes, the pizza, the hot dog, the beef and cheese? Is there any any place you found in the Bay Area?
1: Yeah, there's actually, uh, there's actually a, a pizza operation out here that has four or five stores that is almost identical to a Chicago-style deep dish pizza. And so we uh, we tend to visit those on uh, regular occasions.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And we've been speaking with Joe Starkey, legendary sports broadcaster and play-by-play announcer for the California Golden Bears, and he's also a high tenor. We've learned here today. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me, Joe.
1: Okay, glad to do it. Stay well.
0: Thanks for listening to the College Football Legend Podcast. Tweet your questions at the Sports Jesus. That's at the Sports Jesus. And join us next week because it will be legendary.